0: I'm Jonathan Hollow and welcome back to Second Lives, a series of 12 podcasts for the evidence-based investor looking at the questions that surround fresh directions in later life. I'm talking to 12 fascinating people who are either living out remarkable second lives or who are experts on money and meaning in later life. In 2022, Robin Powell and I published How to Fund the Life You Want, a book that began by talking about life and meaning, then moved on to tactics for managing your investments. My guest in this podcast has tackled both of these topics in some depth. Brian Portnoy describes himself as being on his fifth career in almost as many decades. After managing many people's investments, he took a turn towards the problem of investment psychology, which resulted in two books, The Investor's Paradox, which was about investment tactics, and The Geometry of Wealth, which is about why you might want to have money, and enough money, in the first place. Born in Pittsburgh, he lives in Chicago and most recently founded the international financial wellness platform Shaping Wealth, which helps financial planners to develop a rounded approach to understanding their clients. He has 20-plus years of experience as an investor and educator in the hedge fund and mutual fund industries. He is also a chartered financial analyst. You are about to hear a fascinating discussion about overcoming our own fears and biases what it means to achieve true wealth and why we find it so difficult to conclude that we might have enough. But just before we roll this interview with Brian, I'd like to say a word about Mulberry Bow. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with them. They are a chartered financial planning boutique in the City of London that offers a highly personalised service to around 150 individuals and families. Robin Powell and I liked the fact that the team at Mulberry Bow do not have sales targets, nor do they have their own financial products to sell. They sit on your side of the table. For more information, just Google Mulberry Bow Wealth Planning or follow the links in the notes for this podcast. So now to Brian Portnoy. You said to me that you're on, I think, your fifth career and you Hmm. described your life as a series of midlife crises one of your crises gave birth to your first book the investors paradox so tell me about that switch
1: yeah sure 30 plus years ago I started my career in politics then i decided to go to graduate school and do a doctorate in politics and economics decided not to be a professor decided to go into investments and finance and you know over the course of close to 15 years did investment research, managed portfolios, worked with clients, did due diligence on complex investments, a a variety of different things. And, you know, there was a moment in 2010, 2011 or so, but I think it really was a midlife crisis. Like, what the hell am I doing with my life? I I wasn't particularly happy in the job that I was at for, you know, whatever the specific reasons were at the time. And, um, you know, I just began to write and journal and think and talk to friends about okay um you know at the time i was probably you know or right around 40 years old give or take and part of that journey was just beginning to read somewhat randomly in the psychology literature the psychology of money so adjacent to what i was doing and you know some pretty big light bulbs went off in terms of oh okay th- th- here's here's depth Um, that I hadn't fully appreciated on the way we are wired, how our minds work, how we get along with others, all that, how how we make decisions. I enjoyed that so much that I began to write a book, I published a book in 2014 called The Investor's Paradox. And, you know, there's something in social psychology known as the paradox of choice, which says that, you know, we very much um, cherish um, or love the choice that we have in life, be- choices we have because it, um, it's indicative of us having freedom and, and opportunity and things that are ma- very meaningful. But at the same time, um, in modern society, we have so many choices across so many domains. It could be very overwhelming to the point where it is depressing, like clinically depressing to the extent that any of the listeners are like, yeah, some days I just feel overwhelmed with how much stuff there is it was actually a book about getting becoming rich. It was about making better decisions so you could have more money. Um it wasn't only it wasn't until my second book that I went broader and deeper on rich versus wealthy and, and what it means to be wealthy as distinct from rich.
0: And that's why you say the investors' paradox was the right book in but in the wrong order, because you started at the the tactics end rather than the kind of reasons and purposes
1: end, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, joke, not joke that The Geometry of Wealth is a prequel to The Investor's Paradox, but I couldn't have written that book. I couldn't have written The Geometry of Wealth until I chopped the wood I needed to in The Investor's Paradox, you know, just coming to terms with the relative it's not narrow but the relatively narrow topic of decision making and cognitive science and 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 how we kind of sort through all of the noise hardly a narrow topic but it's it's not as broad as the question of what is the good life so yeah by the time i got to the final chapter both figuratively and literally of the investor's paradox i just began to ask myself like who the hell cares like investing for the most part is a solved problem. Most people, most of the time, um, should not struggle uh, on how to build the right portfolio for their purposes, which isn't to say that people don't make mistakes and advisors don't make put advisor uh, clients into the wrong portfolios. That's a kind of a separate conversation. As the line goes, sim- simple doesn't mean easy.
0: You run a platform called Shaping Wealth. It's really been built up from the impact of a phrase, from the geometry of wealth. And that phrase is funded contentment. You say that funded contentment is true wealth,
1: and you contrast it with being merely rich. So rich versus wealthy. So as I think about it, as I, as I define it, rich is a number. Uh, rich is a search for more. It's something that's quantifiable. So, if you have a million dollars and then you have, then have two million dollars, you've become richer, but you haven't necessarily become wealthier. So, this idea of funded contentment is true wealth, or I define it as the ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. And so, it basically takes sort of deep thinking about a life well lived and then introduces the money piece to it can you underwrite that life that you want? Uh, can you afford a meaningful life? It's a little bit of an awkward question. That is that is wealthy to me. And I think that, you know, for most of us who thankfully have a roof over our heads and food on the table and li- live safely, um, uh, that search for wealth is ever present and, and, and ongoing.
0: This is Jonathan Hollow and you're listening to Second Lives. I'm interviewing Brian Portnoy about the roots of happiness and how true wealth can flower in them. You train financial advisors from all over the world through this platform in the psychology of money and more importantly in the evidence and the elements of a happy life. How radical is your thinking compared to the the backdrop of technical qualifications that advisors are used to?
1: Um, I wouldn't call it radical. I would just call it, you know, sort of, um, it it sort of fills out the hole. I mean, if we take a step back and we just think about the financial planning profession uh, over the last generation, there's been a pretty dramatic uh, transformation of this being a transactions oriented business to a relationships oriented business. Uh, uh, Along the way, there's a lot of technical skills on the planning side not just on building the right portfolios, but, you know, sort of engaging with the right types of insurance, uh, structuring estates in ways that are uh, appropriate, tax optimization, legacy planning. I mean, there's a, there's a whole variety of what I would consider technical skills that are designed towards solving engineering problems. But they don't in any way uh, touch on the uh, deeper things that we tend to Uh, desire when it comes to our lives generally and our money lives specifically. So the the platform that I started a few years ago with the book that I wrote, The Geometry of Wealth, and then the the platform that it inspired is really designed to um, help advisors and advisory platforms engage the other half of their brain. So if we've got these left brain quantitative analytic um, engineering problems, well, we also have right brain uh uh you know challenges with understanding ourselves understanding others building deep relationships helping others we now have decades worth of insight from behavioral science on you know how to communicate better how to listen better uh how how to engage people more more deeply and so we're bringing that to bear and what
0: kind of forces are are drawing people Towards that service that you offer,
1: in some ways, ChatGPT couldn't. There, you know, it's it's the best thing that could have happened to my business. I mean, it sort of came out of the blue, right? Not not AI. AI has been around since the late nineteen forties, but um, ChatGPT and some of these easy to access AI engines now has everybody wondering, huh? Uh, I as a knowledge worker, can, can I be outsourced? What does it mean to show up as a, as a real human being and not as a robot? And so, you know, we're seeing just a ton of interest in humans becoming even more human, whatever that might, might mean.
0: How much does the evidence about happiness or its application differ across the world?
1: I don't think it differs at all. I think people are people. Um, that's not to say that there aren't different cultural attitudes and approaches towards something called happiness, but you know, the model that I put forth in the geometry of wealth and, you know, there's an old line that all models are wrong, but some are useful. I I think the, the model that I put forth, um, in the book and what we now leverage from a training point of view, um, is very useful. Um, I talk in some detail, my team coaches in some detail on the four sources of deep contentment, what I call the four Cs, connection, control, competence, and context. So what really matters to us, and it doesn't matter if you are in the UK or in the US or in Argentina or in New Zealand, these are universal. They are timeless.
0: Connection, control, competence, and context, uh, these are the elements of your theory of happiness, I suppose, and central to the geometry of wealth. Set them
1: out for us. Number one, uh, connection, our sense of belonging, belonging to a group, sort of our deep tribal nature uh, defines who we are. Uh, this is the way that we're born. Um, at the same time, you know, we value control or autonomy. You know, we want freedom, liberty. We want to be able to do what we want. We want to be able to determine our own destiny and, and tell our own story. Uh, the third C, competence, is finding meaning in the things that you do. So when you go to a party and you meet somebody new and they say, well, what do you do? You know, spoiler alert, they don't care what you do. They, they just want a window into who you are. Um, our work, to some extent, defines us so we connection, control, competence. The fourth C is context, and you know this is the idea that we we want to be attached to a broader context, to a broader sense of purpose. And historically, that has been faith or place. So you know we have, um, and not just religion per se, but spirituality. You know we all have one story or another that connects us to the cosmos of where we fit into you know this this vast and incomprehensible, to some extent, universe of ours. And then secondly, whether it's our patriotism or our hometown pride, we're many of us are very much defined by where we come from. Last thing I'll say here, we could certainly go into whatever detail you want, You know, on the country by country front, I, I just wanna make a distinction between a happy life and a meaningful life. We're, we're talking about a meaningful life.
0: And you call that reflective happiness is I think the term that you use
1: when we talk about reflective happiness that that deeper sense that life is good um it is it is attached to a reflective sense of okay those those four things um are important and they are going well or not well it's not a scorecard you know the idea isn't that each is on a scale from one to ten and if you could score a forty you know, you're like leading like a super meaningful life. It doesn't work that way. Uh, In fact, part of the coaching exercises that we do with advisors who in turn use this with their clients is to kind of write your life story through the lens of those four sources of contentment.
0: Now for a word from Mulberry Bow, who have collaborated with us to develop this series. I spoke to Simon Bullock of Mulberry Bow. How does an... How does an advisory firm tune in to make sure it understands a client's fundamental attitudes towards money? Here's what he had to say. It's a difficult one, Jonathan. I mean, the first thing I'd say is we listen. You know, we really listen. And I'm not not sure where I read it, but someone said, if you can show me someone's diary and their bank statements, I can tell you what's important to them. And we try to explore that idea with clients and explore these sort of three limits on happiness, sort of money, time, health. In our experience, all three of those are interrelated and the client's view on how they spend their time and on health, not just physical health, but their overall well-being is going to inform their attitude to money. We're also mindful that a difficult relationship with money can certainly lead to a lot of wasted time and even have an impact on your health. So... I suppose the one thing I'd say is we we try to look at that whole picture. Thank you. That was Simon Bullock, the founder of Mulberry Bow. And now back to Brian Portnoy with his thoughts about money, self-preservation and evolution. So going back to the geometry of wealth, we talked about the four C's that you link to purpose. And then there's a section on setting priorities. You started setting priorities with protection. And I get the impression you think this is really quite deep-rooted in our evolutionary origins. I think a lot of people would start with aspiration
1: or ambition. What I call, probably others call, um, the evolutionary two-step is just the idea that we want to survive and then thrive. Our job is to survive. What our genes are here to do is to propagate, and they can't propagate if um, we are dead. Uh, So our number one instinct that has been wired into us over millions and millions of years of evolution is to stay alive. It is not to achieve. It is not to reach goals. It's not to have a great time. It's not to go out with your friends. It is to stay alive so that uh, you can move forward and your genes can move forward. We only get one ticket for the ride. So on any given day, you have to survive, but you don't necessarily have to thrive. And this isn't sort of a one-stop thing it's a never-ending thing every day okay we, we are incredibly sensitively hardwired so precisely to perceive danger around us um physical danger but also psychological danger um the psychological danger is not something unimportant or or or, or ephemeral um you know i'm sitting comfortably in my home office as 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 are you i doubt either of us is feeling uh, physically endangered. Um, uh, I, I hope not. I, I feel okay. Um, you, you seem fine. No, I'm good. You good? Okay, good. Good. We're good. But then the psychological safety piece is, is also critical in terms of um, we, we don't want to feel uh, emotionally unstable or threatened or captured in, in, in some way we are always taking stock of our environment and sussing out whether there's any sort of danger. It's only on the back of that, that we really can and want to think about thriving and aspiration and achieving our goals and, 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 and living the good life. When you attach all of this to the financial planning process, it means that job one, absolutely job one is make sure that you're okay and it's actually the number one question. So I've met tens of thousands of end investors over the years. The number one question that you get in one way or another is, am I going to be okay? Are my loved ones going to be okay? Not how do I afford the next Ferrari or go on the next luxury vacation or anything like that? Deep down, we are wired to constantly ask the question, am I going to be okay? And so through the lens of planning, you know, that is you know, making sure that we have satisfied our basic needs, Allah, you know Maslow's hierarchy. It is making sure that we, maybe we have a little extra cash in the bank in the event of emergencies. It makes sure that we have thought about insurance in a, a, a general and 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 constructive ways. A lot of
0: the times when you read books on behavioral finance, people will be saying that loss aversion is a psychological trap that you need to at times and places overcome in order to succeed? Well, there's
1: just a very straightforward logic that comes out of evolutionary psychology, which is that if gains were more pleasurable than losses were painful, we would be taking excessive risk and the um, future of the species would be imperiled. It's the opposite we take care of ourselves, we protect ourselves. Losses are much more painful. And we, so we go out of our way to anticipate and avoid those losses. And when the losses happen, we do what we can to mitigate their damage. Uh, And and then the good stuff comes later. So I would say that um, loss aversion is an absolute centerpiece of what defines um, uh, being human. Another thing, A couple of themes that
0: really interested me in the later parts of the Geometry of Wealth were your focus on adaptation
1: and also creative destruction. What happens in any capitalist industry is that someone builds something, um, they sell it for a profit, other people see those profits and they jump into the fray and try to do something better or cheaper or different And change is inevitable. Um, You know, I I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, the seat of heavy steel manufacturing for a century. And at a certain point, the the industry disappeared and a lot of people lost their careers forever. Um, In its wake, Pittsburgh has become a global hub for artificial intelligence and robotics and medical technology. This is the the nature of change. Capitalism destroys everything in its wake um, over time. And um, things replace it. That's not to say that everyone gets retrained from a steel worker to uh, an expert in robotics. It doesn't work that way. Um, There are lots of losers in in the process. But this idea of creative destruction is that the world happens, things change, and we have to respond. Or we can can respond if we want. So that's the connection in your question between creative uh, destruction and adaptation. The world is predictably unpredictable. And we need to assess the situation we're in and decide to go left, right, up, down, uh, forwards, backwards in order to survive.
0: This is Jonathan Hollow, and you're listening to Second Lives. I'm interviewing Brian Portnoy, whose best-selling books have spawned a training platform and stimulated the interest of financial planners across the world. The other thing that you're... The later part of the book made me think about is a a favourite little anecdote of mine about the writer Joseph Heller, who wrote a novel called Catch-22. It made a lot of money, it made him a lot of esteem, and one day he and his friend, the writer Kurt Vonnegut, were at a party given by a billionaire, and Vonnegut said to Heller, did you know that our host, who is a hedge fund manager, has made more money in a single day than you ever made from Catch-22 since it was published a few decades ago. And Heller said, yes, but I have something he will never have. And Vonnegut said, what on earth
1: could that be, Joe? And Heller replied, enough. This is the topic on many people's minds. In fact, I don't know, what's 12, 14 years of kind of being in the wealth management space now um, and just listening to what people are asking. Um, trying to figure out what they care about. There's really two questions that are on people's minds. Number one, am I going to be okay? And number two, how much is enough? From a genetic wiring point of view, we've got this little uh, neurotransmitter in our brain that sloshes around called dopamine. There's a really good book called The Molecule of More. We're we're hardwired to want more. Um, Part of, we talked a lot about survival. Now let's talk about thriving we all, we are goal oriented. The psychology uh, of goals and goals formation teaches us that a life without goals is kind of an empty, not fun life. So we're always striving towards something, whether it be in the moment or over a multi-decade view, like we're, we're, we're all pushing toward, toward something. And where the dopamine comes in is that um, the anticipation of achieving that goal yeah, it floods our, 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 our little, you know, noggins with, you know, this, this chemical bath and like, Oh, it feels kind of good. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm about to achieve that. Uh, and I'm moving toward the goal. I'm going to win the game. I'm going to get the promotion. I'm going to, you know, you know, date that attractive man or woman. I'm going to, I'm going to do the things that, uh, I, I want to do. Um, but then we have another psychological principle called hedonic adaptation. Why not? throw some more jargon into the mix, we have this thing called hedonic adaptation, which basically says that, okay, there's enough dopamine to make us feel good about striving toward this goal, but not, but when we achieve it, um, the pleasant feeling more or less disappears relatively quickly. We're not particularly good at, even though we could talk about it all day long, we could understand the the science and history of it all, but the fact is that we don't know, um, We're not very good at at assessing how good we're going to feel when we achieve that goal. Uh, And usually the intensity and duration of that good feeling is much less than what we think it's going to be. And there's an evolutionary argument for why that's true, which is that if the reward was so overwhelmingly good, we wouldn't be pushing for more. So our bodies are actually built in a way that we are chronically disappointed. I mean, I do, we do at Shaping Wealth, we do a whole coaching program on sort of thinking through what is enough, but I do like to anchor it on the genetic and the evolutionary. Um, I think it allows us to show ourselves a little bit of grace because, you know, like I'm comfortable, you're comfortable, everybody listening to this podcast I'm sure is quite comfortable in the grand historic sense they're not living in abject poverty but we still struggle with wanting that next thing of wanting to move forward of getting the things that we want but not being as happy as we thought we'd be once we achieved it I like to ask all my guests about
0: how they plan for their current success and you have an interesting metaphor for your own life planning process because you talk about Firing the arrows first, then drawing the bullseyes around them. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I never have. I don't think I ever fully will. We're shooting arrows, and we don't know where they're necessarily going to go. We don't know, always know where we want them to go. Like, you know, we venture forth, and hmm, let's see how this works out. Well, you know, sometimes you shoot that arrow, and you're like, hey, I, I ended up in a good place. Well, then you paint the bullseye afterwards. Like, hey, look! I nailed it. I, I, you know, you know, I, I, I wrote a best-selling book that's translated into a bunch of languages. Like, hey, I, I achieved my goal. Was that really my goal? No, not really. But I can certainly tell a story about how I like hit the bullseye.
0: And do you personally feel like you fire a lot of arrows, or do you suddenly kind of swerve from one direction to another through maybe instinct?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. Um Yeah, I've I've shot a lot of arrows in the sense that I am on my fifth career. Um, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, po- politics, then academia, then investing, then writing. Now I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, there there's a through line. I mean, there is a bullseye that I've painted, so I can tell a very coherent story, but you know, it's a coherent story looking backwards, not a coherent you know, on a going forward basis, it makes absolutely no sense. I I, I might look like an idiot. It's like, okay, one thing after another. Uh, At the same time, you know, there are people who take on a job at age 22 and, you know, at age 62, they're still in that same vocation and they've had a great time and they've had success and they've made great money and they have a sense of accomplishment. Like there's no, certainly no one, one right way to do this. So I think, you know, relative to others, I've shot a lot more arrows because at each step along the way, you know, I've said, okay, great. I think I hit that bullseye, but now I want the next archery tournament, like I'm, I'm going to move on. You know, so, you know, I got a PhD from the University of Chicago, like it's not a small accomplishment. Um, I got the doctorate and I quit and I moved on to a low paying job at a local investment firm. Why? Because I wanted to do the next thing. I didn't want to do what I was, you know, on the path toward doing, which, you know, in. Even at the time, but certainly in retrospect, I'm very proud of that because I garnered you know I gained the courage to to make a a, a decision that some people thought was insane, um, but I knew instinctually that that was you know maybe may a good path for me. So yeah, I think. So I'm thinking out loud about this question. I actually think I've shot a lot of arrows, and I still am because you know, in my early fifties, I started my own company for the first time, and it's like, boy, I don't know if it's you know, th- this is sort of a young man's game, but here I am, and okay, we'll 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 see how it goes, and you know, maybe we'll get back on the back on the horn in a in a year or three, and I can tell you about the bullseye I have painted. Thank you. I'd love to do that, and thank you for your candor. I think it's
0: uh, an inspiration, actually.
1: I, I don't like bsing people. It's like let let's talk about what we're really talking about, or let's not not talk at all. I, I don't really have time for the nonsense.
0: Well, before we go, I will link to the Geometry of Wealth in the podcast notes. But could you just give listeners a, a final uh, little summary of what you think the book can do for them?
1: Yeah. So um, I can just relay what others have shared with me, which is that it has facilitated much more productive thinking in one's own head, but also much more, many more productive conversations with loved ones about what a truly wealthy life looks like and how you might go about achieving it.
0: So that was Brian Portnoy, urgent, frank, and fearless. I hope you found his interview as stimulating and as lively as I did. If you've enjoyed this episode, please bookmark this podcast in your app so that you don't miss the next episode. In that next episode, in a fascinating and personal favourite interview, I'll be speaking to Lisa Granick, a remarkable person who has moved from the book-bound world of legal academia to becoming a world expert in the wines of one of my favourite countries, Georgia. I'd like to thank again Mulberry Bow, a chartered financial planning boutique in the City of London that has worked with us to develop this series. For more information, just Google Mulberry Bow Wealth Planning, or follow the links in the notes for this podcast.